You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected with our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge and our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. Before I begin, let me, let's just pray. God, thank you for this time to gather together as a church to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we're here. It's the hope that we have. It's the resurrection that actually propels us forward because we see a picture by faith of Jesus conquering sin and death. And no matter what we go through in this life, the difficulties, we know that Resurrection is at the end. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us that hope to keep going. Lord, thank you for your grace for the last three years. We don't deserve it, but you've given it to us over and over and over, more abundantly than than anything we could have asked for or earned. Lord, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for this family that is here because of our common faith. Lord, may this, may this time, as it's already been a blessing to my heart, may this time just be a sweet offering to you, that you would smile upon this church. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter, or if a scripture journal, go to 1 Peter. But before, we, before I kind of get right into that, As I said before, it's been three years of this church. Three years ago when we launched, we were meeting in the cafeteria at Southwood Secondary School. Some of you were, you were there three years ago. That seems like 10 years ago, honestly. You think time flies, but in some ways, yes, but in some ways it has crawled by the last, especially the last year and a half. So we're meeting in a cafeteria at Southwood Secondary School. In the last three years, I feel like God has done more teaching about and and, and growing and challenging us. Not so much vision, because you know how when leaders are like, what's your vision? What's your great vision for this church? I had no idea what the last three years were going to look like. And even if I had some compelling vision three years ago, I would have been dead wrong. Every pastor who had a compelling vision was dead wrong in the last two years. But I feel like God has taught us more, not so much vision, but dependence upon him. That no matter what happens, that he's still God, he's still good. And uh, I feel like he's done that in my own heart, not not just as a church. So we're really thankful for what he's done. And if you're new with us, we would love for you to to be a part of this family uh, because that's what we call ourselves uh, as a brother and sister surrounded by our faith. That's what we have in common. We have coming up soon, we'll be giving some more information about that. We weekly Bible studies that will be starting soon-ish. That is still... Uh, TBD, so some of that information is coming, but we'd also just love for you to be a part of, of this family and, and, and uh, 
and just kind of walk with us in this journey of faith. This series we're beginning today in the book of First Peter. I've been really looking forward to it. So if you have that Bible, if you got that scripture journal, turn to First Peter right at the beginning. I heard a story as I was kind of thinking through where do we take this series, what do we focus on? I heard a story. Any, uh, any Greek philosophy people out there, you love reading historical stuff? Yes, Brad knows. He might be the only one in the entire room. No one else, Greek philosophy, no. Plato tells a story that's called the allegory of the cave. Heard of the allegory of the cave? Good, no one else has heard of it. Oh, you have. Oh, okay, okay. Half the room has heard, okay, whatever. So I had heard it for the first time. The allegory of the cave is, though, there's a bunch of people in a, in a cave. That's, that's where they're born. That's where they live. That's all they know. And there's light that shines out of an opening of that cave, and there's shadows that, are, there, there's shadows that appear on the, on the rock or on the wall. And they think that's all there is to life, is these shadows. That's all that exists. There's nothing else beyond that. Until one of them actually makes his way out of the cave and sees life the way it was supposed to be. Sees color and light and trees and grass and all of these amazing things that we see as soon as you walk outside. And he sees, man, these shadows are not what, it's not all there is to life. There's more. And so he's compelled by this experience to come back in and tell his fellow cave dwellers what he has seen. And they embrace him and love him and take him in and they all come out together. No. They kill him. They said, no, you're lying. What you have seen is not true. And it was because of his experience of what was actually true, what was actually life, that they killed him for it. By seeing, he became an exile. It was not his lack of communication or could he have presented this any clearer so that they would understand. It was his allegiance to the truth that he actually experienced and his compulsion not to hide it that made him an exile amongst that group. There's a book in the Bible called 1 Peter that is very much the same. That there's a group of people who have been scattered throughout. Specifically, if you look at 1 Peter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion or the diaspora in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, all these people who are scattered throughout this, what's modern day Turkey, then it was called Asia Minor, scattered all around and they were exiles. And he uses this metaphor, this example of the Jewish people who had been scattered from their land and so they're living in a place where they were exiles or foreigners, where it wasn't their customs, it wasn't their home. They were exiles. And in the same way, so there's this physical reality that's going on, but there's another reality that the author, Peter, is going to draw from that identity of exile. Not only is there a physical reality of those who've been scattered and they're away from their home, 
There's a greater reality that parallels that experience that there were Christians, those who expressed faith in Jesus, not because of just where they lived, that it wasn't their home, but because of the values that they lived with, the choices that they made, and the faith that they proclaimed. They were also exiles in their communities and in their society. This mic is going to kill. I'm going to kill this mic if it keeps doing it. If you've been here for three years, that's been the most consistent experience in Restoration Church is a faulty wireless microphone. (laughs) It's not your fault, Alex. I look at you, but it's not your fault. I don't know what it is. Those Christians, because of their values and the faith that they were proclaimed, he describes them as well as exiles. And if you read through 1 Peter, which I encourage you to do as we begin this series, take the opportunity this week and read through the entirety of 1 Peter, which is not that much. There's a theme of trial and persecution and suffering that runs through the entire book. These Christians in early, like 2,000 years ago, what they were going through was pretty intense. They were under attack. There was not only physical suffering, but just a shame. Many families exiling their sons and daughters, which still goes on today if they converted to this new faith. So there's a theme of trial and persecution that's going, and even this author, Peter, the same man who was afraid and disowned the name of Jesus now writes this, and not too, too much later, by tradition account, he would be crucified upside down. And he lived this, being in exile. This is really important, though. The things that they were going through wasn't because of their disobedience. It wasn't because they were doing anything wrong. It was actually in spite of their obedience. They're described as exiles because of their relationship to God. In verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And I don't really have time to go into all that. We We could spend a long time. But may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is how he begins the letter. They're described as exiles because they're, whether you believe it's individually or corporately, they've been chosen by the Father, they've been consecrated or set apart by the Spirit and cleansed by Jesus. That's what made them exiles. It was actually their allegiance to Jesus and to God that made them exiles in, their, in the world. And it seemed that as their faith grew, they suffered more. And so as we read this, yeah, it's kind of heavy. Because what do you do with that? Like, this is, your, this is the identity. You're in exile. If you're not accepted because of your faith, due to your relationship with God, what do you do with that? You can run from it. You can withdraw from society so I don't have to face any of this. You know, I'm going to it's going to hide inside my house. I'm not going to, you know, so that we don't have to go through any of the, these trials that, that we're going through. So you can run from that identity. You can fight it and say, no, 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 this is my home and we're going to go take it back. You can fight it. Or as this author 
encourages, and what we're going to encourage as well, you can embrace it, which I think is the key for how we treat one another, how we live, how we treat those who mistreat you. And today, what we're going to look at quickly is where our hope is actually found. And that's why we've called this series, My Name is Exile. So that being said, I'm going to read verse 13, of 13, 3 to 12. So you follow along in your Bible, I'm going to read verses 3 to 12 together. By the way, there is so much packed into these verses, there's not a chance that I'm going to cover everything. Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. If we have to switch mics, I can do that, no problem. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice for a little while. We're going to have to use another mic, aren't we? Everyone? We're going to have to move. Here we go. How's everyone doing? Good? Better than me at the moment. You're all doing better than me. I'm holding in inner Aaron rage, my passive-aggressive rage inside me right now. Those of you who speak in church, you'll know that no matter what you're feeling on the inside, you just got to come up and do it anyway, even though I'm holding in some rage at my microphone. Let me start again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, which we've already said, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things, uh, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." When it was originally written, that was one long sentence with a main idea at the beginning and everything else just kind of branches off from that idea. What I love about this passage, he's writing to a group, as we've already described, that's 
experiencing a heaviness. And he begins his letter with a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I read that, I thought, you know, it's hard to swallow because no one likes when a situation's really tough. No one likes that person that's overly optimistic. There was a time when I was in grade seven in a small elementary school and we went to face the really large elementary school in Chatham-Kent, which was probably not that large, but in Chatham-Kent it's really large. And we lost in basketball 73 to seven. Okay, we lost 73 to seven. That memory's ingrained that in my head. Sometimes I wake up in a, in a cold sweat and panic from that, from that experience. And I remember we had this person on our team in the huddle, and we're down 60 points. He's like, guys, come on, we can do it. We're all like, no, we can't. Just don't, this is making it worse. Just accept it. We're, we're terrible, okay? No one likes that person that's overly optimistic in a difficult situation. So how do we understand this? It's not just, okay, no, we need the, the upbeat praise song at the beginning of church. No matter what comes next, it's got to be upbeat to get people clapping, and then we'll get kind of into the more slower songs. I love that there's a doxology at the beginning because there's a lot of concepts going on through this passage. And what I don't want to do is just, here's this concept, this is what it means, and then here's this concept, and this is what it means. So it's, everything's just very conceptual so that we simply understand. But it starts with praise and worship, and it's praise for these amazing realities of what God, who God is and what God has done. And the first thing is, that, and I can't cover everything, but the first thing is this. It says God has caused us to be born again by his great mercy. See that in verse three? It says, by his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. That born again, it's the symbol of new life, like that man who exits the cave as he sees for the very first time. That's really what born again is. It's when you see something for the very first time. And those of you who are Christians and you've come to faith, it was, that's the born-again experience. Like, I've see, I see the world differently for the very first time. This past week, I interviewed Matt Collins and the things that he has been through in his life, but it's the, his be- belief in the gospel where he sees something different for the very first time, something new. So born-again is a new way of seeing. It's opening your eyes like a baby for the very first time and seeing your father. This is important, though. The gospel isn't just something to see. It's not something you just look at and examine, but as Tim Keller says, it's the gospel is how you see everything else. That's what born again is. It's, it's change, it changes how you see everything else in your life, how you see your family, how you see society, how you see your job, how you see your own heart. That's what the gospel does. That's what it means to be born again. Like Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So being born again is a new way of seeing. And this is what we see. You're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So that new way of seeing, it says, gives us, and this is the key to the passage, a living hope. That no matter what circumstances we walk through in life, that being born again, that new way of seeing, gives us this living hope. Hope is seeing the goal clearly that propels you as you walk. Ironically, you don't see the goal yet. Hope is seeing what you can't see. Aaron, what are you talking about? I don't want to get confusing. There, but there is a few different ways you can use the word hope. Most of us use the word hope as in it's a wish or it's a desire. Like you might be sitting here today and be like, man, I hope I have ice cream this afternoon. But you don't actually know if it's going to happen. My kids always, Aaron, Aaron, Dad, I hope we can have ice cream after dinner. More often than not, does their hope come true? Yeah, it does. Because <laughs> I want ice cream too. It, we use it more as a wish. I hope the Chiefs beat the Browns this afternoon. But they will. So we know that's, that's more than a wish. I say that because even for church, we can use hope in this way. Like, man, will restoration be here in five years? I hope so, but I have no idea. I hope we're still plugging away. My point is this. Your hope is only as good as the object that you express hope in. Or else it's just a presumption or a wish. It's only as good as the object that you express your hope in. So when Peter says this living hope that's given, it's not just, well, I hope it's going to happen. I wish it will happen. I desire it to happen. This hope is grounded in a certainty because it says it's guarded by the power of God through the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It says this hope is now guarded by God himself. And so it's not just a wish It's this confident expectation that propels us going forward. See, the difference is, Colin's got me biking all over the place now. Now now I bike everywhere. And this past Wednesday, I biked a lot and probably overdid it. I biked 80K, Colin. Not looking for anyone's praise, but I biked 80K on Wednesday, okay? No problem. It was actually a huge problem because about 10K left, I was done. But there's in my head this, I got, my wife and my kids are there. I want to get home for dinner with my wife and my kids. You see, that's not just a wish. Like, I hope I can get there. It's that I know they're there. I know it's going to happen, which actually propels me forward. Do you see the difference? It's not just I hope it's going to happen, but this is the picture I have in my head. I can't see it yet, but it's propelling me forward because I know it's going to be there. It's not so much a wish. It's this confident expectation that propels your life forward. That is the living hope that Peter talks about. 
and it recognizes your own need for something outside of yourself, as verse 3 says, by the mercy of God, he's done this for us. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus. It's grounded in his resurrection power. Man, we could say more about this, but all I can say is this, this ever-living hope can't be taken away because it's because of an ever-living Jesus. One commentator said this, the present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives evermore. Because Jesus conquered death, this inheritance, as it says, is now undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. It's kept in heaven by you, guarded by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead until Jesus is revealed. And we see the full manifestation of the kingdom and the world and your soul is restored. That's the resurrection, it's the grounds for our hope. Without it, as the Apostle Paul said, we are like those without hope. This is what we see and confidently anticipate even though we don't see it. John Bunyan wrote a, way back, wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress, which he was propelled forward by this hope for what's called the celestial city. Even though he couldn't see it, he didn't even know what it really looked like, but he knew it was there. And all along the way, he experiences trials and temptations, all of them, not just to like beat up on him, but to, to actually shake his confidence in what was coming. It's not really there. How do you trust it? It's to shake his confidence, to cloud the vision for the goal as you are going forward. So the great, guys, I say all this, and I know you can get heavy and really into this, which you should actually at home. You can get more into this than what we're going to be covering today, even as you talk amongst yourselves. But here's kind of the point. As you consider what it means to be an exile, how you relate to the world around you, The greatest distinctive that Peter is bringing up as he begins this book is not just how we live. This is important. It's not, the greatest distinctive is not just how we live, that we live differently than the world. We're going to get there. Or it's not that just how we look. It's how we see the world. That we have hope when so many people don't. This epidemic of hopelessness is nothing new. I really was going down the Greek philosophy train this week. A man named Sophocles wrote a reflection about this other person named Oedipus. Commentator Karen Jobes said this. This is what Sophocles said of what much of Greek philosophy... By the way, if you're going to look at Greek philosophy, do it when you're... Not when you're really sad already. Oedipus, his reflection was this. The best is not to be born. That was, that was his view of life. Because there's no hope. All I see in front of me is darkness and fog. There's nothing coming. The best is not to be born at all. That's the best fate. And he says, second best is to die at birth. So I don't have to live with the hopelessness and despair of life. And much of Greek philosophy, as Karen Job says, is the despair of life followed by the unending night of death. If you read literature, much of hopelessness is often pictured as darkness or as fog. It, it clouds your view of what is in front of you, which is hope. 
There's nothing to see that propels you forward. Since hope is oriented toward the future and what you can see in front of you, it's actually the basis of our morality. You think, man, why are people doing what they're doing? Well, they don't see anything in front of them. So why does it matter? See, hope is actually our basis for morality because if you can see something in front of you which propels you forward, then it does matter. There are consequences. There are future consequences for your actions today. And we've said this before, but YOLO, you only live once, is a terrible motivator for doing what's good when it's really hard to do. Because why? But this is the power that we hold. That regardless of what happens around us, this hope can't be shaken. Guys, it's our greatest distinctive in how we relate to the world. We have hope. So how do you know you have hope? This is really important, and it's often missed when we talk about the living hope of God that's been given to us by God. How do you know? Well, it says this in verse 6. What does it say? In this, you rejoice. There's joy. Is the result of that hope. How do I know I'm placing my hope in Jesus? That true living hope results in joy despite the circumstances, regardless of the circumstances, that it's possible to suffer and have joy at the same time. Our response to trial is joy if we have hope. What is your response to trial? How do you respond? Man, there are people around the world that suffer horrendously. It's amazing to me that they still have the joy of the Lord. Let me just say this, and I, you're going to say, Aaron, you're just like a crotchety person. I think the media is killing us. Okay, not to blame it all on the media. I think our consumption of media is killing our hope. And that goes for all of us. Because I'm, I'm, I'm willing to wager in our Western world that most of us don't respond to trial with joy toward one another. I know I, I, I don't. I respond in anger, frustration. I judge really quickly. I think it's killing us. Because what happens, we're taking on a personality of a talking head on Instagram or YouTube. We're not taking on the character of Jesus that endured the cross with joy set before him. So how do we actually respond in joy? Man, we could, I gotta summarize this. In verses six and seven, which we'll look at really quickly. Trials strengthen your faith, which brings glory to Jesus. 
Verse six and seven says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it perished, tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Trial strengthens your faith, which brings glory to Jesus. God uses trial and suffering to test and purify our faith. Romans 5 talks about that suffering actually produces endurance, that we wouldn't keep going if God didn't put suffering in our path to actually go through it. From in the Old Testament in Genesis to from a man named Jacob who was actually ambushed and tackled by God himself and pain and inflicted pain so that he would lose his self-centeredness and keep going to what we just read, which was one of the chronicles of Narnia, the horse and his boy, to Aslan actually inflicting pain on Erebus. Because if he did not show up and inflict pain, she would not keep going. But God uses trial to test and purify our, purify our faith. This is key. We don't rejoice in the experience of suffering, but we do rejoice in the perspective of what God does in that suffering. And that's not an easy perspective to have. This past week has been the first week of school. Our youngest child is in school now. She's in JK. And it's been a trial. Not anything like what these people are going through, mind you, in First Peter. But every single day, as a parent, you have to pull her hand away from yours, place it in the teacher's hand as she's screaming and crying and somehow back up and you want to do everything in your power to help her. But you know she has to go through this. She has to suffer in order to keep going because if I'm just... Do you understand what I'm saying? God actually uses trial to test and purify our faith for us that we actually produce endurance. It's not easy but he's doing it to strengthen our faith. Now that might seem unfair to you, but you need to know something really important that Peter lays out. Faith is the most precious gift that you've got. It says, in this you rejoice, it says you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. This is your faith. It's more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. That, that everything else, even gold, will fade away, it will perish, but faith is the basis of our hope and it will last. Finally, guys, I know I'm kind of flying through, but faith also brings glory to Jesus. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was reading a story of... Uh, King Louis the Ninth. King Louis the Ninth in the nation of well, France, way back in the 15th century, there were Christians who were called the Huguenots. And King Louis the Ninth made it illegal. He changed some laws to make it illegal for them to worship. So they did it in secret. And many of them were caught. And their punishment was not a fine. It was they were, they had to become a slave and 
rode in galley slave ships for the rest of their life until they died. That was their destiny in this life. Without hope, there's no way they would keep going. Why would you? If this is all there is, why would you keep going? Just to row in a slave ship, if you could get out of it. But they didn't. In a museum in France still today, there's a picture of, in, in, in a museum on church history and the Huguenots, there's this bottom of this ship, this bench where these Huguenots sat rowing for the rest of their life because they chose to still worship. Underneath, one person had scratched in and said, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. Guys, that's the hope that shines to this world. Like that's more than just how we live, how we look. It's how we see that even those people in the bottom of a slave ship saw something coming that propelled them forward. That is the hope that shines to this world, that sees what you can't see. It's the hope of a man for the circumstances he's compelled to tell it because he's seen something that they haven't seen. God, thank you so much for hope, this living hope that you've given. By the mercy of God, you've given to us. That you will be revealed. You will make everything right again. Lord, it is that salvation that keeps us going. Lord, may we, may that be our distinctive, that we are the ones filled with hope. No matter what is going on in this world, no matter what circumstances, no matter what disruptive events that shake our confidence, that say, now I can't see the way in front. I thought I could see the way. Now I can't see the way. Lord, we, that what our distinctive would be, which would be hope, we still see Jesus. It's that that gives us energy as we, as we go forward. May we be filled with joy because of that hope. Lord, may we be not be filled with judgment, with arrogance, with pride. May we, may we be filled with hopeful joy, no matter what. God, we pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.